Thank you for joining us for the PebCAC Podcast, a weekly information security show featuring some all-around good people. It is week 41 of 2021. I'm Chris Louie, and with me, I have no one else on the podcast today. Combined, I have more than a decade of information security experience and are here not just to educate, but to entertain. I've got four awesome stories for you this week, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Now, to address the elephant in the room, my two co-hosts had something last minute pop up and were not able to join. Needless to say, they are in our thoughts and our prayers. I booked a guest and we were going to do the pod together, but he also had something come up last minute and could no longer make it. Looking at everyone's schedule, there was just no other time available to record and process the podcast and get it to you, the listeners, before Monday. One of the hallmarks of a good podcast is to have a predictable release schedule. So if we miss this week without any prior warning on last week's pod, people might have think we stopped or our listeners might lose interest. The show must go on, as they say. I'm actually extremely happy and proud that we've made it 27 straight episodes without something like this happening where we had a perfect storm occur where two hosts and our guest had to cancel and that we had no opportunity for a makeup session. I used to listen to solo podcasts like the Lefty Show and the Truly Terrible Podcast, and now is my chance to take a swing at it. For our first topic, we have a philosophical discussion related to a ransomware attack. It's a bit of a long one to lay out, so please stick with me. A report surfaced that the FBI, the U.S. law enforcement agency, had in their possession the master decryption key from R-Evil or Revil in the wake of the massive Kaseya ransomware hack, but they held onto it for three weeks before releasing it. In case you missed it, we talked about the Kaseya ransomware attack in episode 18, where the Revil gang launched their Sudino Kibi ransomware using the Kaseya desktop management platform. They exploited a vulnerability in the platform and they were able to spread their ransomware to hundreds of organizations. Most of these organizations were small to medium-sized businesses. They got their networks infected and they went offline as a result. Revolt offered to release their master decryption key for the total of 72 million US dollars, but nobody paid up. As a result of all the heat and attention this attack attracted from law enforcement and intelligence agencies all over the world, Revil took the summer off to go vacation at the Black Sea, and they haven't been heard of for a number of months before they recently resurfaced. About three weeks after the Kaseya attack, a master decryption key appeared randomly, and ransomware recovery companies such as MSYSOFT began creating master decryptors for people to get their data back. Now, who obtained and released the master decryption key? Revil says it wasn't them. It would soon turn out that the U.S. FBI released it, but they also had it the entire time. So why wait three weeks? There are a few theories here. The primary theory is that an ally intelligence agency, maybe the Dutch or UK or Australia, one of them hacked into the Revil infrastructure and had an ongoing operation there. If they immediately released the decryption key, they would have burned the operation since Revil the Revil crew would have been tipped off that somebody was in their systems. 
the FBI would not be legally allowed to release this master decryption key until the Allied agency allowed it. That is to say, countless organizations and businesses suffered for three weeks while intelligence agencies sat on the decryption key, which would have saved a lot of trouble and hassle. These organizations experienced downtime and untold costs to recover their operations from backup, even if they had those backups. This debate is similar to the one that took place during World War II. So during the war, the Germans had the Enigma machine, which was used to encode messages and was considered unbreakable by the Allies. I'm sure many of our listeners have probably seen one of these things. It was it looked like a typewriter. You'd punch in a message, it it spit out a, a code, and it was extremely uh, difficult for the Allies to, to crack the code. Well, the Allied powers did crack the code eventually. They captured an Enigma machine, reverse engineered it, and they were able to read German communications. However, if the Allies began sinking German U-boats and having their ships avoid German patrols, the Axis powers would have known that the Enigma was compromised and changed to something else. Instead, the Allies essentially sacrificed ships, supplies, and unfortunately even people because the military felt the benefit of reading every single German communication was more valuable than the losses being suffered to continue the ongoing deception campaign. Did the FBI make the right call in sitting on the decryption key for three weeks in order to maintain undetected in the Revil operation? It is important to note that the intelligence community tried to take down Revil with the intelligence that they gathered, but they were ultimately unsuccessful. My opinion of this is, I, I think the FBI made the right call. In this type of situation, there, there is no clear-cut answer. And this had to purely be a 100% judgment call. Uh, the Allied Intelligence Agency probably had to make the decision on, on behalf of the FBI if they were the ones that infiltrated Revil's operations. But I feel the benefit of taking down a crew like Revil, uh, burning their infrastructure to the ground, maybe even getting people's uh, real names, uh, really trying to disrupt their operations, getting people arrested, that's more important than the recovery, the ongoing recovery operation. It is unfortunate that many companies did suffer during this time. They experienced downtime. So from, from their perspective, I can absolutely see why they might be upset over this. But I still feel that if we were able to successfully take down Revil, if we were able to successfully take down you know, other, where, other ransomware crews as a result or learn their, their TTPs, and be able to defend better against it. I think the long-term goal of taking down these ransomware crews and just stopping the scourge of ransomware outweighed the temporary pain that these organizations um, experienced, the ones that, that got hacked through Kaseya. So it is unfortunate, but I think the FBI here, they, they made the right call. I don't know if there's going to be congressional hearings about this or if the FBI is going to have to answer to Congress and tell them why they sat on this and made all these small to medium-sized businesses suffer in the meantime. Uh, it It's really easy to look back and armchair quarterback this and say, you did the right thing or you did the wrong thing. They were, there's no doubt they were in a really, really tough spot. And I think they made the best decision with the information they had, knowing that this temporary pain these organizations were feeling would be for the greater good, that we would be able to disrupt this major 
ransomware operation that has just taken down many very large organizations and has no signs of stopping. There's just no signs of the, the Revil gang stopping what they're doing. And this was our best shot to get them. Unfortunately, it didn't pay off this time, but I, I do feel the FBI made the right call here. Our next topic deals with Atlassian. Atlassian is the software company which makes the popular Confluence and Jira collaboration software. And a few weeks ago, they disclosed a no-auth remote execution vulnerability in their Confluence platform. That is to say, a remote attacker with no authentication would be able to execute arbitrary code on any uh, Confluence server. Confluence is a self-hosted project management, wiki, and team collaboration platform. Due to the popularity of the platform and it's free to download and use, it's utilized by over 60,000 organizations around the world. As with most popular applications, many organizations choose to expose it directly to the internet. Our listeners should already be putting the pieces of the puzzle together. The no-auth remote code execution vulnerability means attackers can just mass scan the internet to find internet-facing confluence pages and inject their own code to compromise the server. From there, attackers can gain persistent access by installing web shells and other means on that server to, and use, also use that Confluence server to pivot into the corporate network. Now, simply patching, not exposing Confluence to the open internet, and having proper network and application segmentation in place would have mitigate or even fully full-on prevent this type of attack. But we all know most IT departments do not do this and that's why we cannot have nice things. And just because you patch does not mean the bad guys and girls are not already inside the network. So it's time to check logs and roll out incident response. Now this bug was pretty bad. It got a CVSS score of 9.8 out of 10. So not a perfect score, but really, really bad. As most, most no authentication remote code execution bugs, that's just asking for trouble that the, there are servers out there that are just dormant there. They just will never get patched. There are other servers out there where the IT staff is overworked. They're not thinking about things like this and they just won't get patched. You can use a tool like Shodan and look up all the Confluence servers that are out there on the internet or somebody can just perform their own scan and find these internet facing Confluence pages and just go there, find the out if it's running a vulnerable version and then just take over the Confluence server and get gain entry into the corporate network that way. This Confluence vulnerability really highlights the need to just not expose anything to the internet that shouldn't be there. If this is your corporate website and this is the face of your website, go to company.com. Well, that necessarily has to be internet facing. You want your customers, you want your prospects, you want people to be able to go to your webpage and to be able to access it. Something like Confluence or an HR system or even something like a VMware vCenter uh, login page, Exposing that to the internet, it's its just a really bad idea. There's, there's absolutely no reason any of these services should be directly internet facing. At a minimum, now at a minimum, they should be behind some type of VPN service that you, you can have uh, open VPN and you can only access it from inside the network. 
ideally you want some type of zero trust access where there's just nothing exposed out to the internet. The user must authenticate before they can even see the service. And that actually hand takes care of a lot of those no authentication remote code execution vulnerabilities because that asset is gated by some level of authentication even before you get to the login page. So having that confluence page behind some type of zero trust access solution would have prevented this outright. It just completely eliminates that, that attack surface. If the attackers can't see the confluence login page, there's no way they can exploit this vulnerability. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, due to a lot of organizations prioritizing business continuity over security, they just said, okay, yep, just put this web page out on the internet. We don't have enough VPN licenses or our VPN concentrator is just overloaded. Just expose this thing out to the internet. It's got a login page. We're not worried. And it's that type of thinking that got companies into trouble because now that there's some vulnerability found within the software of that page that you expose to the internet, that company is now vulnerable to attack. And like we've said before, just because you've patched your systems, you've closed off this vulnerability, that's just no, that's, that's no guarantee the attackers aren't already in there. You have to check for web shells. You have to check your logs for unauthorized access. It becomes a, an ongoing operation just to ensure that nobody is inside the network that shouldn't be there. So if these companies just did not expose these resources out to the open internet, this wouldn't have happened and they wouldn't have had to roll out an entire incident response plan just to ensure the corporate network is secure. I thought this next topic was interesting for a number of reasons. A company called Dark Matter, they market themselves as a cybersecurity defense company based in the United Arab Emirates that specializes in making spyware, just like the NSO group that we talked about last episode. Dark Matter is known to hire ex-NSA operatives who come work for them to develop cybersecurity defenses and offensive capabilities. For those of you who don't know, the NSA is the U.S. National Security Agency tasked with defending America, and a lot of what they do has to do with uh, offensive and defensive cyber capabilities. Well, it turns out that ex-NSA operatives are not allowed to work for foreign intelligence organizations because it is a violation of U.S. export laws for hacking tools. In particular, three U.S. operatives that work for Dark Matter recently reached a settlement with the U.S. government to pay about $1.7 million in fines for developing two iOS zero-day exploits for Dark Matter. Just like NSO Group, Dark Matter claims they only perform lawful surveillance to prevent terrorist attacks. And just like NSO, there are countless claims that Dark Matter software is used to spy on journalists and political dissidents. This was interesting to me because there's a parallel here with how the U.S. trains its military and after a stint of service to the U.S. government, many ex-military joined private military contractors such as the former Blackwater, known, now known as Z, or Dyne Systems. Force Recon Marines, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, even Blackhawk pilots. You name it, and there's a job ready for them in the private sector. If ex-military people can join private military contractors, why can't ex-NSA operatives join private intelligence companies and do what they did for the NSA? My thought is that 
PMCs or these private military contractors are only allowed to operate with U.S. oversight and with U.S. allied countries. For example, Z could not operate on behalf of the Congo government. Now, should ex-intelligence operatives be allowed to spy for, for other governments? I'm definitely conflicted on this one because I, I do believe that people should be able to work for whoever they want to, that there's some level of personal freedom there. If you knowingly choose to work for an oppressive regime, well, I don't particularly like that, but it, it's it's their, it's essentially their right to, to do that. They can take what they know and go teach uh, teach these other governments their their capabilities. Now, I would say if the U.S. trained this person, they should definitely not be allowed to work for governments that are actively attacking the U.S. So someone like in Iran or uh, Syria or China, they, on national security grounds alone, that, that should not be allowed. Now, it might be different if the country is a U.S. ally. But I also don't like the fact that the U.S. would train these people for offensive security capabilities and then turn around and use that for what I consider a bad use of the technology, which is a mass surveillance, so surveillance on citizens, like unlawful surveillance, surveilling journalists and political dissidents in particular. That I, I don't like. And I believe the export controls for hacking tools and cryptography they need they do need to be followed so i believe if these ex nsa operatives can operate within the export control laws that are already set in, in place then that should be allowed and i think what happened here with with dark matter is that the uae might be on a list of countries that we're not allowed to uh, operate with or sell hacking tools to and that's how these operatives got caught. They thought they weren't outright selling them hacking tools. They just went to work for them. And then they developed these exploits for the, on behalf of this uh, company that works for the, the UAE government. If you're interested in learning more about dark matter, there is a, an episode of the Darknet Diaries that goes into detail about Project Raven. And I'll be sure to link it in the uh, show notes here that it, it was really fascinating to hear what the, UAE government was was up to that they uh, recruit people that come from the public sector, so ex NSA typically, and they are recruited here in the U.S. and they're given assignments overseas. So these ex NSA operatives they think they're doing something good for their country, serving the the interests of the U.S. and then they get stationed overseas to the government of the United Arab Emirates or. Uh, some other country that, that that they operate in. And the story on the, the Darknet Diaries podcast uh, follows one of these uh, ex-NSA operatives as he went to the UAE, and it began as lawful surveillance. They were they had some legitimate uh, terrorist threats against the, the country, and they started hacking into foreign governments, and the UAE governments, over time, you can see their interest in preventing terrorist attacks waned, it got smaller, and their interest in just spying on foreign nations uh, grew. I mean, as a result of these investigations into these terrorist threats, the uh, ex-NSA operative got access to systems that were uh, pretty privileged, 
and had sensitive information in them about foreign governments. And the UAE government showed a great interest in this information that he had obtained. And he was in a real moral dilemma here because he, he was brought here to uh, help the government uh, avoid a terrorist attack. But at the same time, the same government is asking them to spy on other nations, which he felt was morally wrong. And it's a fascinating story. I highly recommend that you, you check it out if you have the, the time to listen to it. For our last topic, and this will be a rotating topic every week, I wanted to talk about tech, but not necessarily InfoSec related. It turns out quite the controversy is brewing in the home PC builder community. Makers of solid state drives or SSDs have been committing fraud. Now let me lay this out. The scam works like this. SSD manufacturers Crucial, Samsung, and Western Digital, they will create an SSD drive and publish its specifications. We've all seen these specifications that say, under ideal conditions in a lab, I can get 1.2 gigabits per second write speed, for example. They send these drives out to reviewers such as PC Magazine and other influential people to get their take on them. Once the reviews are published, the manufacturers replace the original components with cheaper and inferior components. In some cases, the manufacturers such as Crucial and Western Digital replaced so-called triple layer cell memory or TLC memory with QLC memory, quad layer cell. That means they're cramming more bits into the same physical space, which makes it slower and more air prone. In other cases, such as Samsung, the NAND flash memory is the same as advertised. So it's that, that TLC type memory, but they use a much cheaper SSD controller. The worst part of this story is that they are swapping in cheaper components without notifying the reviewers who had already given them a glowing review. And they also haven't notified the public who trusts the published specifications. Make no mistake, this is straight up fraud. Like if I sell you a Ferrari car, you better believe it comes with a Ferrari engine. I shouldn't have to look under the hood and check and see if you swapped it out with a Honda engine. One way the manufacturers are trying to get away with this is that most people won't notice the difference between 800 megabytes per second write speed and the advertised 1200 megabytes per second specification on the box. The components are also under a label which states that the warranty will be void if removed. And as a side note, all warranty void if removed stickers are invalid and impossible to enforce. You could actually look that up. Now, is this due to a the global chip shortage that they just use inferior components because they can't source the correct components? Maybe, and that would be fine. I'd be 100% on board with that if that were the case. However, their crime, in my opinion, is the failure to disclose that. If they came out and said, we're releasing a different SKU, we're have, we have the exact same product, but we're using slightly different components, they have to d disclose that. They have to disclose it because people are trusting the reviews. People are trusting the specifications that they publish. And if anything changes in there, that just erodes the trust that people have in these online reviews and the published specifications. There is an expectation that what I'm buying is exactly as advertised. And if the companies change that, they are, are breaching that trust. I've actually had two of these N2 uh, solid state drives die on me prematurely in my lab computer here. 
Funny enough, one was made by Western Digital and one was made by Samsung. The first one lasted 15 months and the second one only lasted about 4 months. The OEMs, thankfully, they honored the warranty and I got new drives to replace them, but just as a note, I would never trust mission-critical data on these SSDs without proper backups as we talked about my backup strategy when we had uh, Chris Hubert on the show. A backup to a Synology NAS that's on my network and my Synology NAS backs up to the cloud. So it's a belt and suspenders. Just in case uh, one of the, the backup fails at, at some point, I will still maintain a copy of the data. Actually, this story actually makes me very angry because I'm a, I'm a home PC builder. I haven't built one for, for some time, but I used to be really into it. And you would have to trust reviews. You would have to trust this published specifications. And if these companies are swapping it out for either they can't source the components or there's a, just a pure greed, a pure profit motive in lowering the cost of the goods that, that they're creating, I just think that's wrong, that they should have to disclose if what you're buying is different than what's advertised or what's been reviewed. I imagine there are going to be several class action lawsuits that, that come out of this, and I'd love to see how that plays out. I'd be happy to take part in it because I did buy some of these, these drives here. And it just sends a message to the industry that you cannot do this to your consumers and get away with it. This one will be a fun one to follow. And if there are any updates to it, I'll be sure to let our listeners know. But just want to put that out on your radar that these three specific OEMs, uh, Crucial, Western Digital, and Samsung are playing uh, funny business with their components. We continue to get great comments about our dad joke of the week. Dad joke of the week. This week, surprise, surprise, I'm up. What did Yoda say when he saw himself in 4K? HDMI. All right, to wrap things up, the FBI sat on the Kaseya master decryption key for more than three weeks to conceal a broader operation. Having any application like Confluence directly internet accessible is a terrible idea and a great way to get yourself owned. Ex-intelligence operatives are not allowed to work for foreign governments and do not trust the reviews for Samsung, Crucial, or Western Digital Solid State Drives. That's all we have for this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any feedback on the solo show that I did today, please let me know. I'd be happy to hear what you think of this format. You can find us all on LinkedIn. Links will be in the description. Follow us on Instagram at Podcast. You can help us grow the podcast by telling somebody else about it. Thank you for all our listeners who rated us five stars in the iTunes store and left us a review. We appreciate you all spreading the word to help grow the show. The best way to find us is to search for the PebCag podcast on your favorite podcast listening app. For my co-hosts, Brian Deach and Glenn Medina, who couldn't be here today, I'm Chris Louie. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week. And as always, have a nice day. Oh, my stuff.